This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 20. And the song lyric of the day is by Peter Himmelman. I have believed in money, but all I got was greed. I have believed in vengeance, but all I did was bleed. I have believed in fame, but fame turned its back on me. If I had only believed in love, I could have been set free. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration, conversations with world-class musicians. Welcome to Sound Heist Records. This is Yisrael Aryeh. So this is a special Father's Day episode inspired by today's guest, Peter Himmelman's song, This Father's Day, which we'll play in its entirety at the end of the interview. And there's a poignant story that's attached to that, which is printed in his book, Let Me Out, which is a really great guide to unlocking one's creativity. It's kind of his Peter's inimitable, down-to-earth, in-your-face, full of humor, stories. And he has a number of exercises in the book. One of the exercises, which he introduces with this incredible story, involves the reader writing something, creating something, and that's meaningful to them, that expresses some real feelings, and just without a thought, sending it to whoever the subject of that of that piece is, whether it's a song or a heartfelt piece of writing. So Peter tells a story of how he wrote a song for his father on Father's Day. So he tells a version of the story in our interview and also in his book, and it was really a highlight of the book for me and really speaks to a lot of where Peter is coming from in his music and in his life about really living life in the moment, valuing the relationships that we have, valuing the power of music to connect us and to open us up. I mean, he's had an incredibly rich and varied career starting with, as he tells me, early days, <laughs> come back from high school age, playing in the mean clubs of Minneapolis to his uh, band Sussman Lawrence and his MTV success as a solo artist. He's written music for movies and television. I'll put his uh, website and some links in the show notes. I mean, you go check it out. His discography is is pretty extensive, um, and his bio is is a lot of interesting things he's done over the years. And most recently, he started an organization called Big Muse, 
where he consults with groups and businesses and helps them access their deeper creativity. It's pretty incredible. I mean, he really is someone who believes in the power of, of human beings to create great things and to just to be great. <laughs> um, and it's really been amazing knowing him. If you have a chance to check out one of his shows, he's just an incredible performer. And performer doesn't even really describe it. He He's, he's a raconteur and... He has this power to bring out buried emotions and kind of break down some of the walls between us, which in his view, which I definitely am on board with this, is kind of the purpose of, of art or entertainment, what a really good song can do. So we end up talking about a lot of things. I mean, it, it's a long interview. It was actually done in two parts. One was in person in a cafe here in New York, and the other was over the phone when he was back at his home in California. And so just to point out that the, the audio quality changes pretty drastically from one to the other, but hopefully everything is more or less <laughs> comprehensible. So before we get to the interview, I once again want to thank our patrons for supporting this podcast, our other podcasts, and our music releases. The support really, really helps. Uh, recently... I've had to take on more non-music work as a necessity to support my wonderful family. But I remain committed to putting out these podcasts every two weeks for now. And hopefully, with your help, you enable more music to be made. It's just as simple as that. So check that out at soundheightsrecords.com slash Patreon, and there's rewards, there's unreleased tracks, pre-release tracks, so go check that out. So without further delay, please enjoy our conversation with Peter Himmelman. first time and now we've, we've spoken a few times on the phone and a few times over the, the interwebs through your very thoughtful songwriting comments in your songwriting workshop which I'm feeling really thankful to be a part of but I wanted to, I'm really happy to meet you I wanted, wanted to talk to you for a while in this context where I can kind of more like interrogate you <laughs> It's quiz a, you about your, your got that light right in my face it's <laughs> kind of scary <laughs> so i usually start off i guess a good place is going back to the beginning of your first musical memory or, or significant early memory that made you want to pursue music in it or at least lit you up with the excitement for music yeah i think my my music excitement really came from behind a door I have an older sister. Her name is Nina, and she was six years older than me. So it was a it was a light years away from six years from where I was. And maybe I was six and she was twelve or something. 
maybe I was five and she was 11. And she was spinning 45s of the Beatles. And later, you know, Diana Ross. And, and, and one of the principal songs that moved me from being a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant, which were the three things that our tribe wills for their progeny, was the animals version of House of the Rising Sun and, and the organ solo in particular. And I just felt, and, and this was all behind the door, you know, it was, it was muffled. You know, when you hear like a, some musical group from far away, they generally sound either way better than they do when you get close or a little bit dimmer. And as you get closer, they sound unbelievable because you get the detail. So this was like obfuscated sound. It allowed me to imagine what could possibly be happening with these instruments. And it just made me feel uh, excited about living, that there was something more than what was going on with the Cheerios I was eating in the morning or, or the things that I needed to do for second grade. And this was This was endless, it felt like. Um, and then I pursued other things. I wanted to be an oceanographer. I still love that, the idea. It's basically like music, I suppose, because you're going, you're going under, you're, you're going into another world, a world of water, or a world of sound waves. And I guess if I can ramble a bit, the best thing those other worlds could do, the explorations of those, quote, other worlds, and similar to somebody who experiences drugs, um, is to bring the mystery and wonder back to, quote, the normal world, the normal sense of consciousness, the Cheerio is morning. Um, because that is the most wondrous thing of all, that because it's so commonplace, we see the sun rising so often, we, we really fail to see the wonder. So I'm saying if there was any utility in these experiences of music, let's say, just so circumscribe the conversation to music, it would be to bring that sense of wonder, not confine it to only the times you're listening to certain music, but to bring wonder to the fact that we're speaking now and having these warm drinks and, you know, my mouth and teeth and tongue and they're, they're forming words and you're understanding them. There's something quite wondrous about that. Obviously, it happens so often we overlook it. For me, uh, speaking retains its wonder because I had a hemorrhagic nodule surgery about three years ago that made me stop talking for, literally stop all talking for six weeks. So it was interesting. And so what, you were, you're talking about like when you were like or six or seven years old, and you, you were talking about your, those first experiences, but those, would you, did you feel at that time like you were already uh, getting stuck in the Cheerios morning? Because I, I would think of like at that time as a child, 
we have that sense of wonder. And I guess when you get older, when you lose it, and then music plays that role. I understand what you're saying. I mean, I don't know exactly. And if I, if I were to tell this story about the Cheerios, which I'm just sort of telling now, it may or may not be true. But parts of it feel true. Um, you know, I remember as a kid, I was just drawn to like bugs, little bugs. And I would, we went to Israel in 1968, less than a year after the Six Day War for a summer, I was eight years old. And mostly what I did was play with ants. We had a, like a small decrepit bungalow behind our cousin's house in Netanya. And it was like a dusty red dirt that they had there, sort of sandy dirt. And the ants were huge. And there were just rivers of these black ants. And so, I don't know, you know, that was really interesting to me. Did you ever, did, were these biting ants? They did were, you, yeah, I think, yeah. I was, when I was in, in your Yerushalayim, um, I must have been um, 24 years old and I spent some time with this very interesting character who was like a Nazir, oh, but he was from Alabama, blonde Nazir hair. Nazir from Alabama, there's your like, song title by the way. <laughs> um, he was uh, he's also like he dressed in traditional Temani and Yemenite Jewish dress, very interesting character. But he had a, a tree removal business. Yeah. And I was hanging out with him. We'd learned some together. And I, I was at that point, I was interested in, in the whole world of the Nazir. So like, I, I was introduced to him. And he was like trying to dissuade me, which eventually, thank God, I, I did. Actually, I had to get a vow annulled, but that's a whole nother Samson story. Samson Gutblatt, yeah. I would call you. But the, so yeah, he was a Nazir Shimshan as opposed to mm. the, the other right. type like uh, Shmuel. But he, so he had the tree, tree removal business. And, and, and I, one point, assisted him with his like 10 year old son from this Jerusalem courtyard. And he cut down the tree and we removed these big chunks of tree. And then after like a couple of minutes, both he and we were getting awfully bitten, me and this 10 year old. <laughs> they kept saying, sure team, sure team, which at the point I didn't know what sure team was a bathroom. Right. Right. I thought I thought sure team was like ants. It was right. like being, being attacked by sure team. <laughs> <laughs> that would be bad too. But I also had a, had a Israel ant experience, we had to go to the bathroom. Rinse them off, yeah. So, I mean, um, I mean, I guess this is to say, I never felt like a, a, a weird child. Um, nobody can, that's just what you are. But in retrospect, I can see um, that what I was drawn to was, was different from a lot of people, you know, doesn't make it good by any means. It just was like, you know, even now I find myself drawn to things that are not popular. <clears throat> you know, Judaism, for example, it's, 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 not, it's not particularly popular, you know, especially so-called observant Judaism. Um, and I think there are people who are sort of chemically drawn, genetically drawn to use the word spiritual thing. 
quotes, you know, I, I use that in quotes reluctantly. Um, and others are l less so. And it's just like some people are drawn to certain types of cheese, and, you know, like, and I, I think I'm one that is very drawn to certain aspects of, quote, spirituality. Um, and I was looking for it as a child. I was looking for it as a teenager. I, I'm looking for it now as a, you know, 59-year-old man. Well, back, so going back to, from getting inspired by, because I, I, I don't know if we have the time today to get into mm -hmm. your whole spiritual journey, which is something that sure, I'm sure. particularly Just interested keep in. keep it on music. As much as we can, can cover, but to go back to the, well, I guess early on when you were saying you were searching as a child, do you had a Jewish, a, um, strong Jewish feeling back then as well? Or Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, it didn't have a name per se. We were conservative Jews. Um, as I mentioned, we went to Israel, so we were Zionistically inclined, mm. more so than most. You know, we actually went to Israel several times. My mom would light Shabbos candles. I mean, so that's a huge thing. Mm -hmm. If you look at the people whose mother did that even occasionally, that's a whole big Jewish connection. And music was, was uh, it always ran sort of parallel to it. You know, to me, they're, they're very similar. Um, this idea of shaping invisible waves to create some emotion or to feel something. So my dad had an eight track tape shop, the first of its kind. You probably never saw one in your life, right? Yeah. And uh, he wasn't, you know, into music. He knew nothing about popular culture. And I could speak for hours about how great my dad was. But it was just one of his entrepreneurial pursuits. And he no records, just A-Track tapes. Yeah, A-Track tapes. But A-Track tapes, just for those of you who don't know, it was like a cartridge. It was about the size of a thick slice of bread. And, and all these technologies that we laugh at today, you need to consider them more carefully because they were the best things you could possibly imagine. Just like the recording device that you have today, which in two years will be so obsolete as to almost be a joke. And the iPhone that I have now in three years will be a joke. But my dad would bring this amazing device that you could pop into your car and have free choice as to what you would play as opposed to you know, listening to AM radio or whatever was offered. So it was literally a game changer mm. in terms of music. So he would unwittingly bring home, I remember this one A track was Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin with those two. And it was like, I don't know, the, some collection. Mm -hmm. And Red House by Jimi Hendrix. It, I listened to it over and over again. And especially... Uh, let Jimmy take over. And you know, like the idea of this black persona, which I imbibed mightily and felt like that was my inner voice as a Jewish 
you know, 11 year old, 12 year old kid. And I, and I felt that this was something strong and something reaching for something that was somehow sexual. It was, it was masculine, it was free. And, you know, and my dad brought home, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. I remember liking uh, Lady Madonna, baby at your breast. And I'm like, baby at your breast? It sounded like, wow, who uses the word breast? It got me all excited. You know, I was an excitable kid, as I mentioned. So my, my cousin Doug had a Fender Duosonic, a red electric guitar. I'd heard about that. And understand that at the time, an electric guitar to a Jewish family was, it was not a normal thing. It was, no one had one. You didn't see them used to advertise Burger King, hamburger. They were, they were, they were nowhere. And therefore they had this mystery about them. And, and I was just compelled to find one and touch one. So we had a Passover dinner at my cousin Doug's house in Golden Valley, Minnesota. And I'd heard tell that he'd had one of these guitars. And in the middle of the Seder, which lasted about, you know, 30 minutes max. And it started probably at five in the afternoon, like, you know, but that's another story. The miracle that after 3,300 years that there's any Seder mm -hmm. or any matzah at all, I could go into that. But I crept away during like the gefilte fish course, surreptitiously searching for the guitar. And they had a, like a kind of a big groovy house. It was kind of a modern house with like carpet everywhere and steps that you could kind of see through like planks and modern. And, I went down and there it was, the case under his bed. And I and I I unearthed it and I opened it. And just like the pictures of the centerfolds of the Playboys at my friend Doug Kaufman's house that we spent an entire summer trying to find his father Clayton Kaufman's Playboy, which we saw only once. <laughs> we spent literally an entire summer trying to find it again. I had the same feeling when I saw the guitar, which is strangely shaped exactly like a woman's body. Of course, the people that designed it knew exactly what they were doing. All the guitars were designed like that. Mm. It wasn't simply that they fit well over your knee. Mm. These were instruments of, of poo or vu, for sure. <laughs> and I, I remember plucking the string dying inside the case. It's a velvet red case, which I still have. I have a guitar to this day. And then I took the cord and turned on the amp. And I, you know, it wasn't that complicated. It was no more than a, a radio. And when I hit the string doing, and it came out loud out of the speaker, not too loud because I didn't, I would be afraid that Doug would come in. He wasn't my favorite cousin necessarily. I was worried about physical repercussion. And that was the change in my life when the sound I plucked came out a hundred times louder than by merely plucking it with my finger. Well, my dad 
helped me to take my acoustic guitar, which I was playing at the time, and he, he rigged up a telephone thing. Um, it was actually my sister Nina's acoustic guitar. She never played it, so I took it over. It was a Stella. And he duct taped a, a telephone thing and hooked it through my sister Nina's stereo, which he was not happy about. And it had a sort of quasi-electric guitar sound. He knew that I had found this Doug's guitar. And one day, the guitar and amp appeared in my basement, in my room. My dad brought it home. For $150, he bought both of them, a Princeton amp. And, uh, and he helped me set all the tone knobs to like five, well, even Steven, like he knew nothing about rock. And, and, and the fact that my dad was so excited and invested in, in, in doing this for me. It just was, I just loved him so much for that. And that was the end of my school career. I was in sixth grade and, I, and you know, my average grade from, from seventh to 12th grade, which is the extent of my education, was, was roundly a D to D minus, seriously. Mm -hmm. And it's not because I didn't try, it because that was the most cheerio thing possible, this benign, banal, educational activity that I was supposed to spend all my time with. The guitar and my burgeoning interest in Pru or Vu were the focus. And, you know, that's how it got to be. The you were you were playing in uh, the guys from I know when you Sussman Lawrence right that, yeah that came out of high school yeah well the drummer from that band his name is Andy Cam and he was my he was my neighbor essentially lives on the next block he was he was a year younger but he had been studying drums like seriously studying drums with a with a his name is Elliot Fine he was a drummer with the Minnesota Symphony. He could read. And I took my Princeton amp in a wagon and came to his house and we jammed one time. And that was, you know, the call and response of this, even this rudimentary jam I could scarcely play was like so electrifying, so back to the thread of excitement, you know, so moving. And I started writing songs, like actual songs, in sixth grade. We had a slew of them. And we played for the spring concert. And then we, somebody saw us at the spring concert and we played at the Cerebral Palsy Foundation of St. Paul, which was like, it was no different than us playing Shea Stadium. <laughs> and I saw the effect that the music had on these people who were you know, physically challenged and, incredible ways like well this is a great gig you know making songs and taking the fruits of your imagination and, and making them manifest and having those manifestations have a very positive effect on other people how could you run away from them and do anything else so from from 
right, I mean, that time, or I guess before even, you kind of had a, an idea that this is kind of really what oh, yeah. you wanted that to do. Oh, that was 100%. Yeah. Exactly. And I, you know, and I, and I pursued it. And, and it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like you have an amazing relationship with your, your father. I mean, I, I actually, I found, I, I mentioned to you, I found um, it was a promotional copy, a first printing of, of this your, Father's Day. This, yeah. Yeah. I mean, next time I have to, <laughs> we meet, I have to yeah. bring it to get, ask you to sign it. But uh, so, yeah, I heard your, the story about writing a, that song for, for him. Um, for was was his was his it was Father's Day or was his birthday? Father, it was, it was, it was on Father's Day. You wrote the song, and you got to play it for him. And then, obviously, it's on the album. You can tell from the so he, you know, that really. I mean, I, I hearing you talk about him from an early age and how he was such a instrumental, you know, getting you the guitar and being like one step ahead of things that you um, were into. So what, how so I can. Imagine that they were, he was very supportive. Your your mother also. In, oh yeah, I mean they were very supportive. I mean I would come home with these you know atrocious grades. They didn't really know exactly what to do with me. Um, but they were supportive. Like I I was in this Caribbean band when I was seventeen or even earlier. I played with this. He's a soul star. His name is Alexander O'Neill, and it was called Alexander O'Neill and the Black Market Band. And Prince's band, he was just before you knew about Prince, it was called Champagne. Andre Simone on bass, the great producer. And, um, they sort of opened for us. But, you know, if you're opening, if you're the headliner on, on New Year's Eve and you're going on at midnight or past midnight, just know that you're not really the headliner. The headliner goes on at 10. Wait, so Prince was actually Prince playing was that in, show? Prince was playing that show, playing rhythm guitar. So Alexander O'Neill, I mean, these stories could go on yeah. like, for so long, you know, trying to make them concise. When I was That's 15 years old, before I had a license, I was going to North Minneapolis. And just for people who aren't not aren't from Minnesota, and it's like, it, it's, it's, it still is a highly segregated city, mm -hmm. as liberal-minded as it believes itself to be, there was no one from my high school that even thought about going to North Minneapolis, let alone to play with Alexander O'Neill and Benji Lockett and Billy the bass player, whom I never even knew his last name after a full year. and. These were, you know, my dad came to the house, the band practice house one day to pick me up because I was playing rhythm guitar and, and later lead guitar when Alex punched out the lead guitar player, which was interesting, another story. And my dad came and met Alex and he goes, nice to meet you, Alex. Peter's told me a lot of nice things about you. You know, my dad was an ex-Marine, an, an incredible, guy basically he was strong he was so strong that he could be courageous enough to to love people and if anything went awry he could handle it hmm. when you see your dad handling something you've seen such as some anti-semitic comment going down uh -huh. you see your dad handling it in a in a 
in a righteous, high integrity, full on manly fashion. It's very motivating. So how, for example, how would he? Oh, he would take a guy by the scruff of the collar and bash him up against the wall. It's not like he would say, hey, don't say that. There were no conversations at a certain point, hmm. you know? And, and Alexander and Neil, they were like, I don't know what they were doing, like cooking opium on the stove. Every, there was pot smoke and he couldn't even breathe in there. And my dad didn't know about pot. He just like, whatever. And he would come to our shows with my mom. And later I was in this band with this Caribbean from Trinidad, you know, all black and played, you know, Peter, can we believe we could play the Caisone and Calypso? They were more Calypso than reggae. And, and all those experiences and eating the, the food, Peter, you got to put the lime to cut the wild taste in of the chicken or the oxtail soup. You got to cook the curry, otherwise you're gonna get a sick stomach then. You know, like, this, <laughs> these were such incredible experiences. Peter, you gotta keep your left hand, your right hand chopping that rhythm. Just look at, like a prince, look at him chopping that rhythm all the time, it never stops. You keep that, otherwise you won't be just a regular basement guitar player. Did you did you have contact with Prince at that point? Did you did you I never never spend time met with Prince, him? but but everyone like most yeah. of the guys in his band I was really mm -hmm. friendly with. Why? Because he was more aloof or I just, just never never came up. He he had come to see our band at, at one point. I had a mm -hmm. song called uh I Die for You Baby, mm -hmm. which some claim he wrote, I would die for you it was literally the same time um i mean prince if you want to talk about prince prince if you saw prince play in his first series of shows he stopped doing this but he would kick each guy summarily off his instrument and proceed to tear it up and make mincemeat out of them not so much on the keyboards, because the keyboard player is this guy I'm very friendly with. His name is Matt Fink. Remember, doctor. And he always wear like a doctor's mask. Do you remember from the Prince and the Revolution? Look at the old pictures. Yeah, yeah. Matt was, is, and still is killing mm -hmm. that piano. And Prince was, he was, he was hard, you know. Yeah. He was hard, but when he got on the drums and played the drums, you basically wanted to, you had to, decide if he wanted to quit music or not at that moment. Because he was, all the guys in North Minneapolis were, were, the threshold was higher of excellence. Um, Andre Simone, who I recently became friendly with, he's the bass player. And he was li literally Prince's best friend. He would tell me, it was Peter when we I would think about some guy in LA practicing. I would start woodshitting harder. Now these guys were poor. They didn't have I mean we were far from rich, my family, but like they were poor. The music was was different for them than it was for me. It was it was a way out and up. I didn't really have that that connection in terms of economics hmm. but the musicianship in general felt to me as though it was at a higher level and Andre Simone 
arguably has the same sort of chops as Prince. You know, Prince, by the way, was a star when he was in high school. A lot of people say, you know, well, when Prince got a record deal, you know, they kind of groomed him into something. Nobody grooms anybody that makes it. They only come around after you've groomed yourself. Mm. Prince, I heard a story. You know, do you know Prince's work at all? There's an album yeah. called Dirty Mind, where he's like in, a, like in a black jacket, basically wearing ladies' panties. <laughs> you know, like a, like a long black coat. I heard, could be apocryphal, that he was wearing that in the halls in 11th grade. <laughs> now he's five foot two or three. How did he get away with it? Because he was bad. <laughs> he was Prince back then. Hmm. He was an ace basketball player too. And Prince, the aisles would part when he walked down. He was already Prince. Nobody had to make him into anything. So that, that, that whole Minneapolis scene, that, that seems like a kind of unique scene I was never... It's a really unique scene. I think it's based on weather. Mm. It's still a scene there. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, I haven't, I don't know the scene there much, but like, it's based on weather, I think, because mm -hmm. it's so cold in the winter, there's nothing else to do when you're in the basement. So there was folk music, there was bluegrass, still is incredible jazz scene, of course, funk, as we know. Um, you know, I was in like a new wave band for a while at our band Sussman's. The replacements, Who's Do, I mean, everything was happening. There was club scenes, there was local radio that was playing mm -hmm. local musicians. So it was like a perfect storm of inspiration and, and manifestation. Well, I mean, it seems like a, I hadn't, I'm still getting a, building a picture of what Minneapolis I mean, over. I mean, I'm, you know, I, this sounds like a very idealized version. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like this, this mecca that, you know, music was flowing out of everywhere. But if, if you, if you applied yourself and you were, you had the ability to relate to people in a generous fashion, let's say. I use those words to supplant for like if you were cool, because I try to define it without using the word cool. If you re related to people that you had some something to offer them, then you met all sorts of people and those people encouraged you and those people were able and willing to listen, which is kind of like what we try to imitate in this song. This, online song workshop it's like a small it's a community and it the more that you sort of understand where each person is coming from the more the more love you have for them mm. and, and it's really that love that encourages people of course it's cutthroat too like nobody's going to suffer a complete fool but my band, Sussman Lawrence, was comprised of myself and four other musicians. I can't speak for myself. 
how maybe they would speak for me. But they were, and still are, amazing musicians. Incredible. And they all lived about a 10 to 15 minute bike ride from my house in my same grade, except for the drummer who was a grade early. Serendipity, Hashgacha Pratit, hmm. Providence. You know, I guess manifestation of, of your idea, such as you're doing with me now, you call me, and it takes, it involves walking, it involves seeing somebody, you know, that the virtual experience has its total limits. Mm -hmm. Just like I mentioned at the beginning of our little talk, if the inspirations of music and you know whatever is inspiring, inciting to you, if they don't bleed over into your normal life, they're not being properly used. So it's it's really about stepping forward and and not being held back by your fear. I can't call this guy because who am I? And, and no matter who we are, no matter who we progress to be and how many records we sell or don't sell, every single human being on the face of the earth wrestles with that problem. Mm. Who am I? You don't think Springsteen wrestles with this and other superstars? They wake up in the morning, they don't look like what they look like in pictures. Hmm. They do not. <laughs> and and that's that is what the the animal soul is is protects our physical being by saying, you know, I don't want to be affronted, I don't want to be embarrassed. I so let me hold back. And it's the godly soul that says, let me go forward. Let me do, and let me do things that are good. You know, let me put more love and generosity into the world. It's not hard to think about how to fix the world. It's not a complicated thing. Was this something that, that you'd thought about and you'd kind of realized before you had these um, Jewish or Hasidic terminology to... I, I started clarifying a, a lot of things for myself, surprisingly, in the last 10 years. Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> you know, like it takes, it, it, you'd think it wouldn't take time. To be more precise, I got the courage not only to talk about this stuff, which takes courage because you sound, you, you're, you're constantly in danger of sounding like a Hallmark card or like some wannabe sage. Right. Um, but I also needed courage just to think like this hmm. because my natural impulse is when I hear somebody opining in this way, just want to smack them upside the head. Who do you think you are? But then again, who do you think you are not to say things that you believe to be true? Mm -hmm. So here you are, you're, you're playing 
you're traveling to North Minneapolis. I mean, you're a teenager, and you're you're developing your chops. You're developing your confidence, developing these musical relationships, and you're obviously been writing since sixth grade. You mentioned. So, what had so what then? Did you, I mean? Do you, was college even in in your field of vision, or was that something? Any pressure you had for that, or, or you just kind of dove right in? To touring, you know, I think the college thing was half of it was I was so into music, or maybe a third of it. I'm going to break it into thirds, you know, and that just was what I was thinking about. Hmm. The other third was my dad got diagnosis of stage four lymphoma right around the time when you know I was seventeen. Hmm. So everyone would be thinking about enlisting their parents' help or whatever to get into colleges. There was there was no energy coming my way for that at all. Um, not that I was really asking for it, but it, that was it. Just like this giant tragedy had struck our family, um, and I was, you know, somewhat on my own. I think certainly more than my own kids were ever on their own and certainly more than, you know, any set of people in the Jewish milieu that, that I was in at the time or that I recognize now, you know, it was you going to college was like having a heartbeat. You didn't not go to college. Um, the other third was, um, I was afraid of, of getting uh, a score on an SAT test that would define who I was and my value and my intelligence. You know, I, I hated the uh, objectivity hmm. of something like that. And it was uh, kind of made me <laughs> reluctant to do any of that. I mean, and also I just, I didn't know anything about you know, somebody mentioned they were going to Brown, for example. Mm -hmm. It meant it meant absolutely nothing to me. I did, it was a hue. I had no relationship <laughs> to, to to school, and also my grades in high school. My mom had recently just sent me some old papers from when I was a kid and into junior high and senior high. I mean, I I, I was getting D's. D minuses. I was not there. I didn't show up at school, so it wasn't even it wasn't an option for me. Um, now I look back. I don't. I don't have regrets per se about it, but it, it is a. It's, it's of interest to me. What a strange path I took compared to, to you know not to most people, but to most people that I was growing up with. But did you feel pressure? to make a living at that point? I mean, to or you had a place to crash? I mean, what, was, what was in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I was living, you know, in my parents' basement, sometimes living at my girlfriend's house. Um, so, I mean, I'm trying to think of the time, the actual, when I was 15 and 16. So 16, I got my license. I was playing in this band called, you can, you know, you're, Listeners can look him up. Alexander O'Neill. He is a R&B singer. 
anybody that's african-american between the ages of say like 30 and 70 will know exactly who he was so i was playing with him and it was right before he joined the flight time sort of princey camp and then i guess later got kicked out of it or something he was not one to be pressured by anyone even by prince hmm. um so i learned a lot about just playing in, you know grooving with my right hand on rhythm guitar and lead guitar something i would already play but the idea of rhythm playing solid playing fluidly making the music move that was a huge piece to learn and after that band i sort of quit and uh there was a very sort of well-known reggae and calypso band called shangoya in minneapolis and uh i you know i really was into bob marley at the time and i didn't know anything about calypso music nor did i care about it mm. and they were playing this band shangoya at a uh it's called the Lake Harriet Bandstand in the summer. They have these free concerts. And a friend of mine urged me to come with. I'm like, what? He said, well, they play reggae. Well, I pulled my ass out of bed and we went there. The place was, you know, teeming. It must have been like, you know, 2,500 people in this outdoor thing. And I came up to the bass player after the after their show. His name was Lloyd, Lloyd Kodna. And uh, he's this guy from Trinidad. He must have been, I don't know, in his mid-30s. And I came up to him, you know, brazenly. And I said, yeah, you guys are really good, but you could you could use me in your band. <laughs> you know, I would take you somewhere that you, you're not right now. He took my name, actually, my number. And I didn't think much of it. I was working part-time in a clothing store at a mall. And my mom called me and she said, some guy named Roy called and wants you to audition for a band. I'm like, Roy? And the band is called Shangoya. Oh, she, Lloyd. And I went to this audition. You know, I was, I had got my license. So maybe I was 16 or 17. And I, I'm, I'm there with this amp that I got for my bar mitzvah custom challenger solid state that if you turn it up loud it would get this kind of sort of distorted sound sort of like a mesa boogie hmm. uh the the sort of the the lesser fourth cousin of a mesa boogie and and there were all these older guys there with great equipment and i could hear them playing down in the basement you know auditioning and some guys were like winding out like Ingway Malmsteen and other people were, you know, they were they were doing things that were really impressive, but it didn't seem to me that they were anywhere inside the music, you know. Mm. So I went down there, downstairs with my custom Challenger, and I had a Les Paul, uh, which I still have today. And we started playing, especially the reggae stuff, and it just was so tailor-made for me to play these like bluesy licks and sort of Santana-esque-ish. Uh, there's a blues guitarist named Luther Allison from Chicago. I was really into him. And all that stuff just fit. And they looked at me and they were like, you know, 
the lead singer, this really beautiful, handsome uh, Trinidadian guy named Aldrich Peter Nelson, who he probably died about a decade ago. And he, he looked at me and goes, so then what do you think you can bring to the group then? If we bring you into the group then not just now. I could hardly understand as long as I was in the band because I'm giving away the story, but <laughs> I could never understand half of what he was saying. His accent was so thick. I said, wait a minute. Are you asking what I can bring to the group? And I, and I was like, I wasn't being funny. I said, you see that amp? And I just played really well. I, could, I knew that it was happening. I said, see that amp? It's going to shoot fucking flames. And everyone started laughing. There's a drummer named Carlos Roque. He's from Mexico City. And Cheryl Davis was a Hammond organ player from Jamaica. She was laughing. You know, who is this like Jewish little prick? And I said, it's going to shoot fucking flames. And when you bring me into the band, you're not going to be playing like the KSDP Channel 5 Spring Caribbean you know night you're gonna be in clubs i'm gonna take you to the best clubs in minneapolis and they laughed and laughed and they gave me all these records to learn and i skipped out of school as was my way and a lot of them were calypso there were big chords and some advanced harmony different rhythms i i struggled with it and i came back the next day and you know i was in the group and it was such an incredible experience for me. Not only musically, the, the rhythms, the different kind of chords and the interplay of the, of the, you know, calypso music, which is the basis of reggae. You can't really play reggae if you don't know calypso. It's the, it's the father of reggae. Hmm. But my relationship with these guys, which still continues today, I, I, I have to say I love some of the people in that group, Lloyd Codner, now lives in Florida. He's like in his seventies. The the other guitar player, Steve Scott, just moved to like Uruguay. But we'd sit around and they'd make oxtail soup and pepper sauce and like I'd come there and just eat pepper fish. They had this thing called pepper sauce, which was made of ghost chili, mm. and. It, the culture is very manly so like it was all about who's the most manly and who could eat the hottest thing and who could <laughs> do the most and you know it's just and i felt very nurtured and very loved um by these people and that was the biggest gift of the experience i think so how long were you with shangoya probably with them for about a year and a half and then I got together with the my high school friends my cousin Jeff Victor my second cousin who's a genius musician genius keyboard player uh, a drummer that I played with uh, Andy Kamen since I was like in sixth grade um, this bass player Al Wolovich that I still play with now he used to come around at that time and want to jam with Jeff Victor and I. And, and, and he wasn't any good. And I wouldn't let him jam. One summer went by and I don't know what it was. I'm constantly asking him what happened that summer. Because in three or two months, he became 
from absolutely less than a middling player to an enormous talent. Hmm. He's playing like funk, like Brothers Johnson and Jaco Pastorius. He just said, I started listening. And I think he got laid for the first time, too. That might have helped. <laughs> uh, so, and there was another guy, he was a multi instrumentalist named Eric Moen. And these guys are all from my class, my high school class. And we were fantastic together, and they were fantastic musicians. And so I formed this band called Sussman Lawrence. Um, and I quit the band, the Shangoya, and I told them I was quitting. It was really a sad day, and they were. They're really upset because I did get them into the clubs, exactly as I said. I got a new amp. It didn't shoot flames, but they were <laughs> playing the caboose and, you know, all sorts of different clubs in Minneapolis that they had never really played in before. And I started doing my originals in Shangoya, too. But the Sussman Lawrence, we, we, you know, we put out a record. It's 1979. Now... For your listeners who don't really know what that was like, nobody had a record. It's not like today where every single musician has a has a a record. Because in those days to have a record a recording studio, it was like a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar investment somebody mm. had to make. It wasn't like you did it on your iPhone. Mm. And in order to utilize the resources of that expensive you know, investment. You either had to have a rich father or you had to be doing something really interesting that somebody was going to invest their time and resources. So we put out uh, a record and then we made a double record after a few years. We moved to New York. We had all these labels looking at us and, you know, brings up to kind of sort of the point at which I'm still dealing with right now. Well, when you when you made the decision to to leave Shanghai and you were playing with these, I guess that you know, uh, childhood friends or high school friends, and your mm -hmm. cousin. So it sounds to me like from what you're describing, even though they were really talented, that you had a little bit of uh, a added experience that maybe they didn't have yet. Was, was that kind of a, I would made you kind of the de facto leader or was just or do you well I was yeah I did have some experience that they didn't have but they had a lot of musical knowledge um, they were they were really good so it wasn't like um, I was going to come in there with all sorts of chops that they didn't have now, Jeff Victor and Andy Cannon, they were in a cover band. They were playing like Journey and Foreigner and, you know, mm -hmm. some prog rock stuff. I wasn't really into that. But, the, you know, it does take a certain amount of chops to play that stuff. And I, and I should say Jeff Victor was also really into Greg Allman. All the players, by the way, they, they, they had a vast... Uh, mastery at uh, many different styles. Eric Moen played saxophone. I mean, he sounded like Coltrane. He could play, you know, classical guitar. You know, so, and I mentioned Al Wallovich on bass. He's playing like Jocko and stuff. So, I mean, my strength was 
as I think it still is today, was kind of creating a vision. You know, here's what this is going to be. And also I was writing all the songs. You can't really get anywhere without songs. Mm. Something people sometimes forget. Um, and, you know, you need a you need a rallying point. And I did tell them, like, you, you know, I don't know that I told them this, but the vision was such that they they opted out of college for, quote, one year to, to give this experiment a try. Well, many, many years went by, and basically nobody ever went to college of that bunch. Mm. I think Andy Kamen went later, got his degree 20 years later, and Eric Moen did too. But, um, you know, it was a rich experience. We were on the road um, at, you know, 18 and 19 years old. We were one of the most popular bands in Minneapolis, if not in the Midwest. Um, and nobody, there was no like parental supervision, you know, it was yeah. a very interesting, you know, just as I have raised my own kids and just seen, wow. I mean, the things that we did, nobody told us what to do. There was no roadmap, um, you know, scheming and scamming and, you know, doing whatever needed to be done. So those were some valuable skills, certainly for anyone in the music business. Well, a lot, I mean, a lot of young guys who, who achieve that kind of early success often lose their way. I mean, it, it sounds like th there's more to, to a vision than just a vision for the music. When you take musicians with, with a variety of different skills and, and kind of help shape a, a path, but there seems to also be a path towards a kind of uh, continuing success or, or at least not imploding. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you can imagine, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, so many, uh, I know just myself at, at that age, I, I, and I, I'm very fortunate, you know, like I look back and I feel in a way because of the way my personality was, I, I know for sure that had I had any kind of, um, that kind of uh, unbridled freedom and success of, of being able to, I, I would have, I would have wasted it. I would, I would have gone off the, off the deep end. I mean, I did even with, even without no, um, oh, the platform, you know, but yeah, how, you what, know, there must've been something that kept you, that kept you grounded is what I'm, what I'm saying. That, that Well, you know, first of all, through some of those Sussman Lawrence years, you know, I was on the road and playing and, and my dad, who was, was the biggest hero in my life was dying so it was it was a big part of it um you know i i somehow wanted to achieve some level of success before he died mm. just to show him something i don't know what that was was that i was going to show him and i didn't do drugs i i was a absolute pothead in like through junior high and high school but once I was in like I think 12th grade or something I stopped using drugs I never even to this day have ever tried coke um, so 
you know, the allure of drug and alcohol for me, thankfully, it's not nothing of my own doing. It just has never been super appealing. Um, you know, my thrill seeking lies in other areas, I think. Right. But I'm just mentioning that because, you know, yeah. drug and alcohol, life is so hard and so complex when you add drug and alcohol into it you're pretty much lost you, right it's you're, you're you know almost incapable of, of managing a dream let's say or carrying some sort of vision into manifesting it into reality but you you consider that the um relationship with your father the situation with your father that kind of helped you form those what obviously in retrospect you know are very responsible decisions to not go in that direction or let's say even whatever other th thrills and you know, whatever other partying that it would have done would not be uh, ultimately distracting you from your goal that somehow you yeah you had I, mean, made I don't know, I don't know that it was I, I probably misspoke or put too much weight on this thing with my dad but it did in some ways it it made me a more serious person at a much younger age, mm. put mm. it that way. Um, and what does serious mean? It's, it's hard to define. It's a very nebulous term in this context. Um, there were just things that I wanted to achieve. There were things that I, I didn't want to do to bring like embarrassment to my dad or something. Hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard for me to say. Um, the other thing is it's really hard to carry a, a child's dream into adulthood. This, this, this musical idea, the, the, the vision, the sense of myself as being this freely creative person, which I had since, let's say I was 11 or something when it really started going and now I'm 59 and I'm still doing the same kinds of things. And I'm not saying it's, it's good or, or right. Um, but it is, it's interesting to me to reflect that as an adult, I still am acting in many ways in a very childlike fashion. Um, I haven't lost touch with that inner 11 year old i haven't you know and sometimes it's a it's a big problem um, well for i mean for most people don't obviously don't have that experience most people do lose touch with their childlike sense and they do lose touch with their creativity and i know that's something that that's a big part of your work is in helping people, you know, you have a book called Let Me Out, which is basically about letting mm. the inner child, you know, play again. Um, but for, I guess that the other way, it's it's what you're saying, there's childlike aspects that are very valuable that if you can and one should be able to carry them into adulthood. But I guess like you're saying, yeah, there, there mean, are other aspects that are really mm. not so, <laughs> meaning to be able to differentiate between the healthy... Well, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe the difference and slight difference in, in language is there's child, childish and mm. childlike. And maybe it's the latter that has a more proactive 
sort of sense about it. And so where did you, do yeah. you feel like you had, yeah, it seems like you had some of a, of a sense of a difference between those two things oh, yeah. I mean, from a younger age. Maybe yeah, that, yeah. that might have been from even a younger age. I don't think that I'm a childish man. I mean, my wife might certainly beg to differ <laughs> with that at times. Emotionally, I'm sure there are vestiges of that. Um, but, you know, childlike to me means, uh, you know, in some broad sense, that you just haven't lost the fire for life. Hmm. That that there's a still a sense of of wonder of excitement, of passion. Um, and it doesn't have to be for, for music or anything that you're, quote, working on, but just for life itself. Um, and when that goes out, boy, you are in sad shape. You really are. And it goes out occasionally for me, too. It's not like it's this eternal near tamid or something. Hmm. You know, the question is, is, can you get it back after it kind of snuffs out or, or dies down? Maybe well, it becomes more difficult, too, uh, as you get older. Well, I definitely want to talk, you know, so because you have, obviously, there's stages in your career and stages in your personal development, your spiritual development. I mean, one thing uh, that I know for me, I admire, you know, someone who at, at a younger age did have a little bit of that sense, maybe had a certain kind of guidance or at least a good sense to follow the, whatever guidance was available. For me, it really that really didn't, the ability to differentiate between healthy behaviors and healthy attitudes and unhealthy ones really didn't come till I started learning Torah did, and, and I'm trying, trying mm. to apply it to my life. Interesting. Mm. Um, but for you, I guess that at a certain point, I don't know if you left Sussman Lawrence or, or your, your solo albums kind of just became called Peter Himmelman well, with the same band. Yeah, what happened to me was uh, right before my dad died, so they, they initially said he had like four months to live. He was 48 years old or something. He had this stage four diagnosis. He's really young. Hmm. And he lived... And maybe he was 49. He lived about five years beyond that. He was a Jewish Marine. He was really an incredible person. Mm-hmm. He was very self-effacing, very strong. Minneapolis, everyone's, by the way, freaking out about there's a swastika on somebody's locker. My cousin, Jeff Victor, whom I just mentioned, mm-hmm. he had a big laugh the other day. There's a news like local Minneapolis news that there was a swastika drawn on a locker somewhere at a high school and this was mm. we laughed he said what week weren't there 15 swastikas on the lockers when we went to school <laughs> it was just like ubiquitous but my dad when he saw something like that or some anti-semitic thing or any sort of unjust thing he would. I saw him take a guy and smash his ass up on the wall in a second. When you see that in action from your dad, got to tell you, it's a really good thing. It's a motivating thing. You know, hmm. he would just take no shit 
and especially about Jewish things. He wasn't, you know, outwardly observant, but man, who Minneapolis rife with anti-Semitism. So you know, I don't know how I got down on that path. Well, you're <laughs> where were we? Well, because you, but, I uh, mean, I know that that the the first solo album. Um, it's yeah, called so, so there, yeah, I was talking about, exactly, so he lived four or five years, and, and this is the way the solo album came about. Sussman Lawrence, you know, we had all these record people looking at us, we'd moved from Minneapolis to the East Coast, I was living in Manhattan in Hell's Kitchen, and I was writing all these other songs at the same time that I wasn't really sharing with Sussman Lawrence, or they weren't. They were very different from the songs that I had been writing. Songs like Baby Let Me Be Your Cigarette. Uh, I'm your fireman. Show me where you're burning. I'll be there to hose you down. Uh, we're having a pajama party. Me and my baby are ready for bed. <laughs> I have these crazy <laughs> songs. It just They were they're just totally overtly sexual and funny. But then I had these much different songs that were absolutely polar opposite from that and the father's day before my dad died we were playing in Amory Wisconsin on a Saturday night um, and Sunday was father's day so there was going to be all my cousins were there and at the, at the party that was about to happen my mom told me you know write a funny song for your dad cheer him up and there was all sorts of bagel and locks in the refrigerator. And I got home from this gig at like five in the morning. And I I definitely didn't have a funny song. And I nor did I have like a tie or any present. And I started writing as I sometimes do with, as I mentioned, with no plan whatsoever, with no conscious attempt to do anything. Strumming my guitar and kind of culling words as if from a, half dream state and I realized oh man this is like a song about my dad this is a love song because I know he's going to die this is no bullshit here and I wrote this song and I recorded it on a four track Porta Studio cassette four track hmm. and I started crying at the end of the song and I and I was reaching with you know to do it over again because like that was a bad take I cried and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to leave the tears and all. And I brought the cassette upstairs to the breakfast, the brunch for my dad and all my cousins are there and everyone's trying to put on a jovial face. And I popped the cassette on and literally people started crying from the tape hiss. Hmm. And maybe it was the look in my face. And by the time the song came on, you know, it was just me and my dad in the room in our den. And and we're both crying and listening to the song. You know, it wasn't like I ever cried with my dad that you're going to die. Nobody wanted to admit it because he was so young. And he carried the song, the cassette, like in the breast pocket of his Munsing wear shirt. For another couple months till he died. He died in died after my twenty-fourth birthday. 
Hmm. November 24th. Uh, my birthday's on the 23rd. He was 54. And they played this song at the funeral. And it was just a tragic situation. So we were still playing in Sussman Lawrence. We moved out to New York. And a woman called me. Her name is Ruth Grosh. She's currently uh, in some Indian tribe in like eastern, northern Canada or something. I think her name is Ruth Owa now. And she she's a friend of mine. I'd written some music for a therapeutic teddy bear that she had made called Spinoza Bear, which hmm. financed our band's trip to New York. And she called me and said, I've just met with these psychics. And they are worried that you're going to die soon. Would you like to meet with them? I'm like, well, I'm, that's interesting. You know, I guess they're thinking I'm going to die. I was pretty depressed. I was going to be in Minneapolis the next week, so I went to the psychics. Now, the psychics were a, they were a husband and wife pair in a northern Minneapolis suburb. We went there. Ruth and I, and her, she drove in her car, new age flutes on her, you know, cassette deck all the way up there. And I come to the house, and you know, I was oh, I should mention the date that morning. It was a year and a half after my dad had died, and my mom was going out on her first date ever since hmm. my dad probably. She, the first guy she ever dated was my dad. And she was really acting weird. She was like flitting around the house, trying on different outfits. It's very off-putting for me. I'm like, damn. She was acting like a schoolgirl. Like I'd never seen her like that. Hmm. So we go to the psychics. And the psychics play some sort of like game with me. They said, well, you know, to get things started, why don't you mention a name of somebody? And we'll tell you all about that person. So I mentioned the name Janet. That was my girlfriend at the time. And she had, they had Janet like completely down, but it wasn't that impressive because, you know, psychics, whatever. <laughs> so I mentioned Jeff, just the name Jeff. And the two psychics started looking at each other, like staring at each other. And the woman says, he can't stop the music. And the husband says, it flows out of him. And then they started doing these facial tics. The exact same facial tics that my cousin Jeff Victor, who has at times suffered from neurological tics. Hmm. They started mimicking the exact facial tics. One was called Southerner, where his, their hands would kind of like tense up and point downwards. One was Reckless Greeter. Jeff made up all these funny names for his own tics, <laughs> where the hand would like come into like a like a wave, like hello. And then their their mouth would kind of stretch out. I'm like, what is going on with these freaks, these people? Then I said Beverly. And they started giggling. I'm like, what? And is going on and they said she's she's excited but she she's doing something she thinks she shouldn't do 
and the and the husband says she's 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 like a little schoolgirl today. Hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm done. What in <laughs> hell is going on? You've got my attention. You know, obviously that was my mom. Right. So they said, um, "Is it your wish to leave the planet?" And I kind of thought about it for maybe more time than one would. And and I said, no, it's not. And they, they seemed relieved anyway. And they said, you know, the music that you make is so essential to who you are. You, you don't even, you, you've lost touch with its centrality in your life. And believe me, this is something I think about even presently. Hmm. You need to be playing blues and reggae and the kind of stuff you're doing in your band. You're 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 so concerned about getting a record deal and it's so commodified and commercialized. It's literally forcing you off the planet, which is a euphemism for killing you. So I sat there and I and all of a sudden I said to them. There's this one song that I wrote for my dad that is so like pure and so absolutely not commercial. It was just made between me and my dad. It's basically sitting in a drawer in my desk, you know. They said, you need to take that song and put out a single with that song. And all of a sudden, I can feel even as I describe it, it was like a turning point in my entire life. Because that would certainly mean that I was now leaving Sussman Lawrence in many ways, the, the, the band that I was so faithfully the leader of and putting out my own stuff. I mean, that's like, it's the beginning of the end. And I, and I started like crying. I could see this was huge. It was like opening opening me up and I I said I'm not going to make just a single I'm going to make a full album remember those are the days it was hard to make an album it wasn't Mm. like you just did it in your on your you know iMac and I got back to New Jersey to uh, to the airport Mm -hmm. and uh, I told the band I'm going to be making uh, a solo album happening whenever I say something it usually happens and I said you know I'd love to have you play on it I'll, I'll pay you but it's gonna happen anyway we made the album we put it out one of the songs 11 the confession we made a video for this friend of mine spent $7,500 making the video hmm. it's a gorgeous video it got on MTV uh, 120 minutes with Martha Quinn. That was their like local, like not local, but the independent music. Right, I remember hour. Martha Quinn. So uh, I I realized because I was I knew some people at MTV and I'd been in at some meetings there, and I realized how much stock they took in people's opinions and it was it was before the internet they would read letters so I, I had all these people come to my apartment in hell's kitchen with different kind of pencils and typewriters and 
and write about how much they like this video. And you know, I say, yeah, Kimmelman misspell it. Only use one M, and you know, all these totally different letters. And I mailed them maybe thirty of them from around the country. One person from Florida, one from Atlanta, one from California, and. I, I have absolutely no idea that this was what caused the next thing to happen. But two weeks later, they added it to regular rotation on MTV. And I called a friend of mine named Wayne Robbins, who, who was writing for a music journalist for Newsday, New York Newsday. I said, here's a story for you, man. He goes, it is a story. They'd never play unsigned uh, acts on regular rotation and I had a a friend from high school who was working at Island Records I told her about it and she she told the record company president Lou Malia at the time he had just come from uh, I think it was Atlantic or something he worked with I forget who and I had a meeting there after that story came out and he saw the video, he was watching it over and over when I walked into the room and I could tell he was really into it. And I said, look, I know you want to sign me, you just come to this label and um, here's, here's my terms. I want you to put out this album I made for my dad as the first album. And I said, you know, if you if you don't agree to it, I'm going down the street to Warner Brothers or any of these other labels. You'll get in a bidding war and you're going to lose. They're bigger. And he laughed at me just like Shangoya laughed at me. And he said, we want you here. Meet me at 4 p.m. today at the Sherry Netherland. We're going to go meet Chris Blackwell. 4 p.m. we go up there. Chris Blackwell offers me a chocolate-covered strawberry, and he says, I saw your video. It's good, quite good. Welcome aboard Island Records. Mm. And that's how that shit gets done. You know, I, I told you I, I was up in a, a record store. It wasn't even a record store. It was like a, a, some kind of old things store in uh, Williamsburg. And I found a copy, a vinyl copy of This Is Father's Day. Mm. Um, this, this was after I'd read your book, where you, you tell that story about writing the song for your father. Um, yeah. And uh, it was actually a promotional, <laughs> promotional copy, I don't think. Um, mm, that's... But, uh, th- so that, w- that version of that song, was that the exact same one you recorded that yeah, you played for your father? Yeah, or Okay, so you didn't even re-record it, it's just... No, there's only... Uh, I never played that song ever again. Oh, wow. I never even played it, let alone recorded it. I have to, I'm going to take another listen. <laughs> I, 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 when I listen to it, I mean, obviously, you're, you're, um, it's very emotional. You can hear your, your, um, the emotion and the crying. And um, I wasn't sure, though, when I listened to it, if that was the exact same recording. But now, it obviously, makes a lot of sense that, like... Yeah, you're not going to cry twice. No, well... <laughs> <laughs> some actors, I guess. <laughs> um, wow. And, th- and so, so you were with... So w- at what point... Um, did you did you meet Simon Jacobson? At what point were did well? So yeah, that was let's see. I got signed probably the summer of uh, spring, maybe of 
Was there something that um, was inspiring you and draw, to check out Jewish learning? or just Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I was like, you know, understand that, you know, I was super Jewish even before I met Simon or the Lubavitch or Rebbe. I came, you know, I came to uh, the East Coast with my band. I had to fill in with me. I mean, I didn't put them on all the time or very often at all but I was like constantly thinking about Jewish things this is from from growing Jewish up place you, and yeah just the feeling you had from your bar mitzvah not my bar mitzvah but just just in general like what who are these people or a sense of very sense of tribal belonging I mean Nobody had to convince me very hard. I remember I was failing out of math. Um, this is like, I think, eighth grade or something like this. And had a cousin that, his name is Mike Wexler, that got very firm, got very religious. And he, he was happened to be a medical student at the time. And he was tutoring me in math. And he asked me if I would be interested in going to see Rabbi Feller, who is a Chabad Shaliach in Minneapolis or St. Paul. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to go. I wasn't resistant. Hmm. But, but I remember Rabbi Feller saying to me, he goes, when I got there, I just said, look, I, I'd like to preface the, you know, I was, I was young. Like I said, I wasn't childish, childlike, perhaps. I said... <laughs> I'd like to, you know, preface our conversation by letting you know that, you know, I don't believe in God. And he, he, he was so nonplussed by that. He, he just like, I remember him. It, it, it was the least important thing he'd ever, ever heard. And he <laughs> said to me, look, I could still put on chillin." I mean, like, in other words, the old adage, you know, the same God you don't believe in, the kind of anthropomorphic Christian-based construction of conception of God that you carry with you is entirely rejectable, and I completely agree and understand it. Hmm. So let's put on some tefillin, like whatever. Yeah. And I did put on tefillin. I, I, my cousin Mike gave me these tefillin. I remember going on a camping trip with this guy named Jim Carter, a friend of mine who was obviously not Jewish, and I snuck off and put them on, you know, surreptitiously. And I remember putting them on at home in my bathroom, the same place that I would blow pot out the window. It was like in the basement. Surreptitious to fill in wrapping. Because, like, it's weird, you know. Nobody's in my house is putting on to fill in. It's too, like, religious. So there was also something very subversive about Jewish practice, which I think appeals, appealed and continues to appeal to me. It's, 
it's it's so uh, weirdly revolutionary, almost reactionary in a way. Hmm. It's it's not a wholesale rejection of our culture, but in some ways, it it rejects vast tracts of the culture. Yeah, I, I got I it, get that it, same feeling. Mm-hmm. I get that so same it sense. It relegates to unimportant so many things, and I mean this is a this is a crazy leap, perhaps for some. But what I always felt that rock and roll was was it was some sort of you know to many people's minds it was subversive. It was saying there's more than meets the eye, um, and I loved it for that reason. But it became just some homogenized part of popular culture. It became part of fashion. It became part of the economy. It lost all fuel. Hmm. And to me, part of the, the the injection of Hasidus, you know, those sort of inner mystical dimensions of Judaism into the music, I thought brought it for me, I don't know for anybody else, it, it it brought that revolutionary spirit back to life. Yeah, well, it, I mean, I, I share that <laughs> as well. Um, and, and I wanted to kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, there's, I'm sure there's an in, endless amount of things that we could talk about. You've had such a, a prolific career. I have so many things on my mind to, to ask you, but one of the, where we are running short on time, I want to respect your time as well. But one of the main I, if I'm going to prioritize things I wanted to discuss with you, this kind of is a good segue into that, which is your sense of where, specifically with music, but in general, it could also be in terms of where the world is and in terms of where, obviously, uh, Hasidic teachings have a lot to say about the state of the world, where we're headed, what, how we should be, engaging with it, what is our role? So I kind of wanted to ask you um, in terms of how you see that, both for yourself, but also in terms of how you would encourage and guide others in terms of what you see that, because obviously things have shifted a lot in terms of, let's say, a music business, or or just like you're saying, like the role of music, music become losing its its fire in some ways in certain um, areas. I guess it's kind of a very, very, very broad well, wave. I like it. I, I can, I can dive in. Okay. In a similarly uh, broad <laughs> fashion, uh, you know, if music has a role, and and you know, this will be probably a narrow definition for some. I mean, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in our first section of the podcast, but I saw. Uh, this documentary on John Coltrane, Chasing Train. Hmm. And uh, one of the guys from his band, from the early band, McCoy Tyner, was saying, you know, what what we were doing in that period around giant steps and all the, you know, the things that were really, when Coltrane was just really on fire. We were up on the bandstand, he said, and we knew our role. 
And our role was to bring joy to people, to help people transcend their their lives. Mm. I'm sort of paraphrasing that, but to me, it it meant that if you're up on the bandstand, if you're up on the stage, you're doing two things, or one of two things. One is you certainly have the ability. You know, if you have people buying tickets to your show or whatever, you know, to get up there and soak it in and aggrandize yourself. That's definitely something that every person wants to do. But in terms of purpose, if the proportions aren't correct, if you're not up there giving, if you don't understand the role that you haven't done some a quick little meditation and I mean quick it could be one second like wait a minute I'm hopping up on the bandstand this is religion here you're telling the people there's much more than meets the eye the music is opening them up now sometimes you'll hear the expression yeah we're gonna go out there and kill them I remember I was in Chicago one night we're playing in the middle of a big show and I stopped the show for a second I talked about that right in the middle of the song I said you know that expression you know we're going to kill him <laughs> I said does, does anyone have a thought as to what that means <laughs> it's a woman in the front row she took the mic and she said yeah I think you're showing us that you're you're diminishing I don't remember her exact words but you're diminishing our temporal side our corporeal our physical side, you're killing it off a little bit in order for us to transcend and see something of the spirit. And I said, yeah, that's that's right. Kick it in again. Two, three, boom. <laughs> but that's the role. Now, you know, you can either take that role or not. Um, the reason that we love our musicians is because they take us there and and different musicians take us there in, in many many different ways from like death metal to you know the highest level of complex bebop you know everybody's got their own taste um but as that relates to the world you really what, what I think the goal is, is you're circumventing the primitive impulses that we all have. The primitive impulse, the first impulse is to take, is to uh, survive. It is to, as I said, aggrandize oneself, to protect oneself, to defend oneself, to take for oneself. Hmm. Um, the childish just, it, <laughs> like we were I mean, talking it's, about before it's, yeah it's it's not only childish it's part of our literally our neurological makeup we have this will to survive and we need it but in order to have a relationship with a spouse or a friend or a child you have to work to reverse 
that natural order. And it's, it's, it's essentially an impossible task to feel and empathize the pain of another or the joy of another and to take that on for oneself. But, but that's a, that's a, that's, that's a goal for me Hmm. and I'm not successful at it. I'm not claiming that I, I am good at it at all. But I, I, as I get older, I'm more and more focused and interested in this idea of sublimating my own needs, which my ego is outsized. I can tell you that right now. You could probably hear from the way I talk. I mean, it's it's all about me. But I still at the same time am conscious of the need to sublimate it. And I'm talking about with certain relationships, not with everybody, but with certain ones, to start seeing what my resources, whatever they may be, can do to uplift other people. I actually heard an interview. Um, Major Tom. <laughs> he was talking about a similar thing. As he matured, he said that this was a big part of what he was thinking about. Hmm. Um, talking about Bo- Boeing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not a. It's not a particularly Jewish. It doesn't belong to the Jewish people. God knows. <laughs> but it is something that Hasidus is always talking about. It's about bittel, self nullification, humility. And it those terms almost seem anti-American. I mean, like, you, you know, strong, brave. But anyone who really minds this territory understands that strength and bravery is most needed in that area of self, self-nullification. Mm. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of defending oneself. The, the potential conflict between... I mean, it's this week's Parsha was just teaching one of the, the children I teach the classic teaching about why the Torah was given on Mount Sinai being the lowest of mountains so the question is asked so because it, it, it represents humility that when one learns as gaining in wisdom they have the potential to gain in, in arrogance as well but that great wisdom needs to come with great humility and so that's why it's given on the lowest of mountains Though the question is asked, well, why is it given on a mountain at all? <laughs> if it's about humility, then why mm, not give it in a yeah. valley or a pit? So then the answer is that we do need us to stand tall. It's just the met- to, to be humble in, in our standing tall. And I guess to apply it to, to musical activities, especially for someone, let's say, who doesn't necessarily have... I mean, there are many people, and hopefully one of the, the main target audiences among the larger family of musicians. And as you said, we were, we were previously speaking that even Bruce Springsteen, you know, has his moments of doubt, you know, whether, what, what is he doing? You know, um, mm-hmm. we, we could figure that, but let's say musicians who haven't had that external success or, or have, but have the drive or even have had success, but nevertheless is doubting what they're doing has purpose. That, that idea of, of 
so one thing, a, a certain kind of humility could lead a person to inactivity. Say, well, I don't want to be the, you know, the guy on stage doing the thing, thinking about how great I am. So I, I just won't do it at all, you know, or the, meaning sometimes that kind of comes in the way expressing other kinds of fears. But how, how does, so, I mean, you've, you know, looking at, at all that you've done over the years and how you're very, um, very straightforward about your own struggles with, with the process and um, in general with the ups and downs of life, but nevertheless, you continue to create, you know, and, and not just in music, mm. but in writing and, and you do um, workshops, which, uh, you know, I was privileged to be a part of, of one of your workshops and you do consulting and, and you've, you know, um, many different genres of music, film scoring. And uh, I mean, if you've covered a huge range of, of things and you continue to, so uh, how, obviously there's, there's a balance that needs to be struck um, where a person is, is continuing to be motivated and, and does have some ambition. Whereas well, by finding I mean, that humility the, within the that. Ambition comes from somebody once said in an interview or something like, wow, you know, you do so many things and so creative. I'm like, if I'd have had a, you know, multi-platinum record, I wouldn't have had to be so, quote, creative. Part of it is just, you know, try putting four kids through private colleges. You know, like, I... You, there's there's a need to fill and I guess when I was young too I just felt like I have to do something I don't know that I'm I don't have a trust fund you know I, I better do something I'm not good at golf I'm not good at math so this makes sense so a lot of it was just fear and urgency and need do you think if you did, if you, you think if you did have a a, tr a trust fund, let's say you just had, what would would your life look differently than it does now in terms of what you're creating currently, or would you continue to create? Well, do I what mean, yeah, I mean, I think like if all of a sudden I just got like a boatload of money and money wasn't a concern, right? Um, I would probably wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> there uh, you go. And what so. I did, I mean, I I wouldn't. I would be. I remember Steve Martin, the comedian, was, he's such a brilliant writer too, by the way, mm -hmm. such a great thinker. He said, you know, when you're really wealthy, which he is, he goes, it, it just eliminates that problem. It's like taking a teaspoon of water out of the sea and then the sea comes mm -hmm. back. I mean, it's not, it doesn't cure anything. Right. But it would, you know... I don't know. Um, well, the question about money, you know, I, I just made this new record. I know that the record is not going to make a dime. So then, so why are you doing it? Which is part of sort of proof that if I had tons of money, I would keep doing the same thing anyway. I mean, right. I'm doing it because it's, it's unbelievably fulfilling. And particularly this record that was such a collaborative process. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's n nothing is in balance. By the way, with me, nothing is figured <laughs> out. Nothing is, you know, let me advise you on exactly how this is going to go. It just doesn't work that way. It's a it's. 
the algorithm is too, too complicated. But, you know, living each day and trying to make sense of each day, trying to do something for someone other than oneself each day, and, and also doing something for oneself. We're people, too. You mm. know? We deserve to help ourselves, too. I think the urge to create. I mean, this is the this is something that I I know a lot of um, musical people who who uh, not necessarily make their living in music, but feel that urge to create, and you know, it, it, not just about finding the time and and the motivation and the inspiration, but the ju- um, the justification sometimes is coming from from others and sometimes from oneself that it's like. Well, this is kind of self-indulgent, especially to say a person is really given over to being taking care of their family, to uh, giving to others. I one of the things that I, I think sometimes is lost, which you, which you're saying um, that it shouldn't be lost, is that that giving to oneself, let's say spending time making music that that close that is satisfying to oneself, um, can seem self-indulgent. But I re- as you're saying, and I, I really feel very strongly, it, it, it's really not. I mean, obviously it can be, but it's, it's, if, it's, if a person doesn't give themselves any time to nurture that side of themselves, then they don't really have so much to give to others if that's what, you know, what yeah, their soul true. is calling them to. Very true. And here's another way to look at that, too. I mean, the people that I know that are... I don't know how to put this, you know, what the term is, you know, sort of creative types, hmm. what it, whatever it is that they do. And some maybe just like to play with children or something. You know, I don't, I don't put any boundaries on what creativity is, but creative types, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't have a choice in the matter. It's not a decision. Just like, you know, uh, needing to eat or relieving oneself. It's not really a decision. It just, it's there. It must be acted upon. Um, the people that I know that are, that do this stuff, writers, um, doctors, I mean, all different, they, they just do it. But they the, would I mean, do it anyway. They would do. They would create in a prison cell. They would create, you know, anywhere. It's just. It's almost like breathing. There's a friend of mine who was, was a doctor. He, he said, you know, I wanted really wanted to be a photographer. We were walking to shul together, and he said, but you know, I just realized that how hard it is to make a living doing this stuff, and you know. And that's but that's what I really wanted to do. I said, "Man, you never wanted to be a photographer hmm. because a photographer wouldn't 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 think that way." You know, they would just they would do it. And any well, photographer that you see that's out there working, I mean, nowadays photographers like music is it's a dead industry, basically. Not completely, but completely disrupted. Um, they all went through that 
thing about money and you know they thought about it but they moved ahead anyway so what is they the target audience they had to do what, what is the target audience of your you'll say your book let me out i mean that that seems to be speaking to a person who didn't just naturally because they have no other choice be creative it's someone who has to make a conscious decision to say i have to let my creativity out i'm stuck i mean that seems to yeah, be a very common you know it, yeah, that is true. I mean, there's something of a general audience there that was like similar to that doctor I'm talking about, who who has sort of set down his or her childhood dream. But everyone who's and maybe this slightly contradicts what I've been saying. Everyone who is a musician today, for example, is all, always rethinking it. And needs also needs to be recharged and also needs to find this innate essential spark. Hmm. You know, so many musicians, myself included, we kind of came to a point of learning or understanding and you're kind of coasting on that for a long time. And you're not digging deep into it. You're not reinventing. Hmm. So everybody has to you know, undergo that experience of, of and that decision to sort of dip themselves into the paint of whatever it is and kind of refresh their paintbrush. I mean, hmm. nobody nobody stays high, you know, on high octane without a break. And whether that break is they just need to be re-inspired or they need to be re-inspired to, to begin something anew or something that they'd put down for 30 years. It's essentially the same idea. So it seems to be what you're saying that kind of to connect those two seemingly opposite ideas, on which on one hand, the creative person who's driven is, is going to do it because they, they feel compelled to do it. But on, on the other hand, when you have this idea that there's, there is a, people run into blockages, that both of those work together because of the, that creative person who's going to find their way to do it, they have to const- be consistently, over time, finding new strategies, new ways, new approaches to, to be able to overcome whatever is holding them back um, because they're compelled. And let's say someone picks up your book, Let Me Out, they're picking up that book because that's a, they have that that drive to to do something they just don't know maybe what what the next step is but they're not just sitting around yeah. you know reading people magazine they're you know they're grabbing your your book or you know or listening to this podcast or you know looking for a way out you know in into their creative self yeah i mean that's kind of a i guess what you're getting at is are you looking to are you at a place where you're looking to advance in some area or not and mm. you could be a full-time professional at something, or you could just be starting something. But that same energy and impetus is is there for both. I just wanted to to, to comment on something you said, like a creative person, and it's something that we always talk about. Everyone talks about. You know, he's a really, she's a really creative person. I mean, to me, in a every person is creative that's it's an essential factor of humanity Mm. every person is is creative just like every person breathes um and the only thing that thwarts creative thinking or behavior and that is 
probably needs to be defined a little bit more what what creative behavior actually is. But the only thing that thwarts it is fear. Hmm. Where we sort of, and sometimes all you know, paradoxically, fear can spark it. But in the moment that we're actually fearful, the fear itself represses the creativity. So how do you define creativity? One is that you have sort of a, a, a less fettered access to your skill sets that you're able for that moment to think in an unbridled, unhindered, unfettered way. And what is the bridles and fetters is usually fear. Hmm. And that that your imagination is, you know, you're holding it in your hand. It's it's in front of you. And it has nothing to do with the arts. It's It could be anything. It could be a conversation, you know, cooking, being with a child. And I was going to say that fear can generate creativity it creates a need and an urgency but once you start taking action whatever it is Hmm. could be critical to save your life the fear isn't there anymore you once you're taking action the fear recedes Hmm. i'm really fond of military histories and so on and you know you, you i'll talk about all these soldiers that are in an actual firefight um it's terrifying before and after it's not terrifying at the moment it's something else it's this intense immersion into awareness different intensity of awareness to me that's a creative state hmm Well, Peter Himmelman, this has been a real pleasure. Um, I could go. I could talk to you for for hours. A million, million more <laughs> things on it, but ho- hopefully, will to be continued. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's do it. And I wish you, you know, incredible success with every aspect of your life and your and your music, and um, we should ultimately experience that that joy. You know. To be killing it <laughs> in the most positive A- way. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, I'll talk to you soon because I'm going to be your neighbor pretty soon. So looking forward. Going. All right. Well, good Shabbos. I'll talk to you soon. Take care, Peter. Good Shabbos. All right. Bye bye.
title track of Peter Himmelman's 1986 album, This Father's Day. I hope you enjoyed it. I play it. I dedicate it to my own father. May he live and be well. Um, It reminds me of him, as I told Peter on another occasion, because my father plays guitar and he sings, especially at like family occasions. He's he's prone to, to break up a little bit. You know, like Peter does at the end of that song. It's uh, something uh, really close to home. (laughs) So I wish all the fathers out there a happy Father's Day, happy Father's Year, and all the mothers as well. Everyone should be blessed with happy and healthy children and grandchildren and our creations, which are also sometimes feel like our children should be blessed with a, a creative process to give birth to father, as they say, musical moments and compositions and movements that inspire, that transform, touch another human being today, reach out, do some acts of kindness, support music, your own music, others' music. As always, you can support Sound Heights Records, our podcasts, and our music releases at soundheightsrecords.com slash Patreon. Again, I want to thank Peter Himmelman for taking the time to share his wisdom, his thoughts, and his music with all of us. May it be the beginning of a fruitful relationship with Sound Heights Records. And remember, with abundant singing and playing of music, we bring about the true and complete redemption. See you next time.